being drug out of here, wanted to hear me preach so much that they cried too. That would be great, great for my ego. Hey, grab your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 14 if you have one. If not, those verses we're going to read uh, will be on the screen. We're also going to be in Philippians 3 if you just want to put a finger there for later on. The writer of Ecclesiastes wisely said long ago, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink And to find fulfillment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. You know, I take this verse literally when I'm approaching a steak dinner. That there's nothing better than to eat and to understand that God has given that to you. You see, it's hard to beat a medium rare ribeye garnished with a loaded baked potato, some roasted asparagus, and a little garden salad to make you feel good about what you're eating. You couple that with a glass of sweet tea for me. That combination of flavors will make your taste buds stand up and shout the hallelujah chorus. Right? I mean, those flavors draw you to the dinner table. The smell and the flavors that you know that are behind that aroma draw you to the table. But on the flip side, there's nothing less inviting than something that's bland. Like none of us get up in the morning and say, you know what? I want to eat something that tastes like nothing. That might have been why the Israelites griped so much about the manna that they were eating because they didn't have a whole lot of flavor there. Flavor, many, in many ways, comes from one distinct ingredient, and that's salt. Salt adds flavor to so much of what we eat. It makes a tasteless meal have taste. And so it's salt that makes a steak come alive, right? Most of the seasonings that we use and put on our, on our steak or whatever we're cooking there has some aspect of salt in it. And so if you are a person who struggles with high blood pressure, my choice of dinner is probably not a good choice for you. But if you can handle some salt in moderation, you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to a beautiful, delicious ribeye. We ready for lunch? So, salt is the ingredient. Uh, It's very similar when we come to what Jesus is going to tell us this morning here in Luke chapter 14. He's going to give us instructions on how to have flavor in our lives. He's not going to teach us how to grill. He's not going to teach us how to smoke a a ham or a roast. He's not going to teach us anything from that standpoint. But he is going to explain for us how how we should have some gospel flavor about us. So we're going to see what it takes to be a salty disciple. Look at Luke 14, if you will. Let's begin reading in verse 25. I am pressed for time this morning, so uh, and the sermon is shorter than normal, but that doesn't mean the delivery is going to be shorter than normal, so we're going to trudge right along. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. My prayer is that we have ears to hear this morning. So we find Jesus here again in Luke chapter 14. In these verses that we've read, he's moving toward Jerusalem. Remember, we've been talking about this ever since the latter part of chapter 9. Jesus is determined to offer his life as a sacrifice in the city of God, in Jerusalem. And so as he's traveling in that direction and ministering to the people in the villages and along the roads, many people are following him. That's what Luke is cluing us into as he quotes this story. They came to hear him because of his kingdom preaching, because of his kingdom power. So some in this crowd, some of these people who are accompanying him are coming because they just want to see the big celebrity who's passing through their town. Right? Jesus is a big name. They've heard the stories of people being healed and, and blindness cured and raised from the dead. They want to catch a glimpse of the celebrity as he passes close by. Many wanted to receive an easy meal. Many others might have wanted to have a relative healed or experience the supernatural. So whatever their reason, Jesus gives them a reality check as he lays out in very unforgettable terms, the cost of being a disciple. The cost of what it looks like, what it means to be a disciple with some salt about it. It's not the first time Jesus has talked about this. It's not the first time he's addressed what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. He's laid out what it means to be his disciple many times. In fact, if we were to drop back into chapter 9, we would see that after Peter's great confession of faith there in Caesarea Philippi, where he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus goes on to talk about discipleship. Just as he's launching out his 12 disciples and they're going to go and preach the gospel, he talks about what it means to be his follower. As we look at the word of God, we can come up with a simple definition of a disciple as one who simply follows a teacher. More specifically, we could define it as one who walks in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as the teacher, as the master, as Lord Therefore, any would-be disciple who listened to the Lord would understand that discipleship would cost him dearly. Jesus makes that very clear. And yet the benefit of following him is well worth the price. So great crowds are accompanying Jesus, and surely many of the people believe this to be a good thing. We would look at this and say, wow, look at him. He has got a following. He's got 
2,000 or 20 million followers or whatever number we want to lay out there, we would look at it from a social media standpoint and say, look at the influence Jesus is having. The crowds are enormous. They're flocking to hear. They're flocking to see. They're flocking to follow him. And yet Jesus never seems to be concerned with the size of the crowds. In fact, if he's at all concerned about the size of the crowd, he's concerned that it's too big. And he constantly is trying to winnow that size down. Winnowing away the spectators and those who weren't really in it to follow him as Lord, but simply wanted to get something from him. You see, it doesn't take a lot of effort to gather a crowd. Give a lot of stuff away, you do something, you just, you know, put on a nice show, you say some flatter, flattering words, you can get a crowd. Jesus was never concerned about that. As we think about this from a church standpoint, we're not in this gospel business, if you will, to gain a crowd or to gather a crowd or to build a big crowd. We're in it to have a church established and grow. And that's a much different thing. It is quite difficult to build and develop a church. You see, the difference between a crowd and a church is one is comprised of watchers and the other is comprised of witnesses. One is in it for what he can get and the other is in it for what he can give. The call to follow Jesus is a call to lay one's life down for his glory, not one's own. So when a person willingly follows Jesus and follows in his suffering, then he or she can and should expect to pay a great price. That is what Jesus is conveying to us. That high cost, however, will make a salty disciple who brings flavor and preservation to other people. So we discover in these verses three characteristics of what I'm calling a salty disciple this morning. The first thing I want you to see, the first characteristic of a salty disciple is they love Jesus Preeminently. Did you catch that in verse 26? That, that a salty disciple, one of the primary characteristics is that that person, whether a man or a woman, an adult or a child, loves Jesus preeminently. You see, one of the great distinctions of biblical teaching that is contrary to other religions and other secular thought is a focus on family. Jesus goes on in this verse, verse 26, to talk about if you don't hate your wife and your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and, and your own children, you cannot be my disciple. You say, Jesus, that doesn't make a lot of sense at all. In fact, as I read the Bible, I see the exact opposite. There's an emphasis, there's a focus on family. I mean, Moses commanded God's people in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. We read elsewhere in Mark 7 that Jesus affirms in his teachings that very commandment, to honor your father and your mother. We read about Apostle Paul writing to the church there in Ephesus, and there he commanded Christian husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then we read in Mark 10 and other places where Jesus welcomes children and embraces children and puts an emphasis on children, which was completely countercultural at that time. Likewise, we see Jesus calling on other people to love and to be reconciled with their brothers. And so where is Jesus coming from in this command, this calling, that if you're going to be a disciple, you have to hate your family? The Bible seems to put a big emphasis on family. How are we to make sense of this? Well, here's what we should not do. We dare not interpret the words of Jesus as being contradictory to the rest of Scripture. It's not. 
God's word never contradicts itself. And so we need to understand a different interpretation. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about how our love and our affection and our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as king of our lives must be so preeminent, so hot-hearted, so passionate that every other love and affection in our life pales in comparison. It looks like hatred in comparison to our love and our passion for Jesus in our life. That's the point Jesus is making here. He's saying something very paradoxically to us, that our love for him must be so great, so pervasive, that natural love of self and natural love of family pales in comparison. So we don't interpret these words to speak of a carnal hatred toward family. We interpret them metaphorically, understanding that Jesus is calling us as disciples to make family and self and every other love a distant second in priority. So our love for Jesus should be so great that our love for others feels like hate. But it's not hate. We love our families. We love our children. We love ourselves, right? We're we're to love others as we love ourselves. That's part of the commandment. So Jesus understands that, and he would never tell us to hate ourselves. This preeminent love and this affection for Jesus, what it does mean is that we we will prioritize his will and his calling over and above everything else in our life, even our families. You see, when we love Jesus preeminently, He's our focus. He's our devotion. He is the object of our worship and nothing else. We believe as Christians in the family. We prioritize the family in this local church. We call men to love their wives well. We call them to nurture their children well. We do the same for women. We prioritize the family. Why? Because it is a biblical priority. Here's what we must make sure that we never make the mistake of, and that is allow the family to become an idol. You say, how can the family become an idol in our life? Well, when you're chasing everything in this world that it has to offer in the name of family over and above Jesus and his lordship and his worship, it's an idol, right? Now, you're here this morning, so that's a good thing, but sometimes Christian families chase everything on the weekends in the name of family. What is that telling your children? What is it telling Watching world, what is it telling the Lord? It may be telling that Jesus is not on the throne of your life, but little Johnny's on the throne of your life. And you're trying to get him to the major leagues, or you're trying to get little Susie to the Olympics in gymnastics or dancing or whatever it is. And I'm on a soapbox this morning, but let's not make family an idol in our life. Let's make sure that Jesus is preeminent in our love and in our affection. Same would be true of self. Jesus here in verse 26 tells us to to prize and to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. And so we can become an idol unto ourselves. We must never allow ourselves to become that. But instead, as Christians who would desire to be a salty disciple, we must be willing to leave family and reprioritize our lives in a way that makes no sense to others All because we love Jesus preeminently. Second characteristic of assaulting the disciples is that they bear their cross daily. He goes on to talk about this in verse 27. That if we're to be a follower of Jesus, we must bear 
our own cross. Now, the cross, we, we hopefully understand what the cross is. It's so much more than that little piece of gold that's hanging around your neck or maybe dangling from your wrist today or may I also say tattooed on your body somewhere because that sometimes is what believers do. I'm not even going to touch that this morning. I'm going to leave that alone, right? Got some jokes to say about that. I'll leave that alone. The cross was an instrument of execution. It was a place to die. Audience of which Luke is writing his gospel, Theophilus and others, they would have known full well what the cross meant. They understood it as an instrument of Rome to dispense justice and to deter rebellion. And so these people here accompanying uh, Jesus also would have been fully acquainted with a Roman cross. So they understood this word picture Jesus was using. Lord was calling those who would be his disciples to join him in suffering and willingly lay down their lives. This tells us that every disciple must bear his own cross. That means we must be willing to pick up and carry it daily. You see, discipleship requires a cross. Two crosses that we need in our life. First of all, we need Jesus' cross. We need the Lord Jesus' cross. What do you mean by that? It's everything we pictured in the Lord's Supper earlier. It's his death, burial, and resurrection. It's him hanging on the cross, bearing your sin and shame. His blood being shed for the forgiveness of that sin so that you could be made right with God the Father, justified and made holy before him and on your way to heaven. You need Jesus' cross. There's a second cross every one of us who name the name of Christ need, and that's your own cross. Not dying for your own sins, not burying your sin in your body, not paying for the sins that you've committed on your own. That's not what we're talking about. It's you simply being willing to suffer for Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In that chapter there, he's sending people out again to preach and to heal. And as he sends them out, he warns them about persecution that they're going to experience. And, and he simply tells them, don't expect anything but what you see I'm receiving. We should not expect anything else either. And so the cross for us symbolizes our dying to self. It symbolizes our joining with the Savior in his suffering so that the kingdom is advanced. Jesus' words here specify that cross-carrying for the disciple is essential. It is not incidental. It's essential. I wonder this morning, as a Christian, as one who's been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb, do we realize that cross-carrying is part of the Christian deal? Is suffering is something you signed up to when you said yes to Jesus. It's hard for us to experience that or, or to fathom that in America because it's so simple here. But if you pay attention at all and you seek to live your faith out in this culture that we live in, you're starting to see it's not as easy as it once was. You'll be canceled if you speak the word of God and try to live under the gospel and proclaim that to others. That's part of our cross. So Jesus' words here specify the essentialness of it. Now, our crosses, each one of them, look different. But the commonality that we all share is that salty disciples are willingly laying their lives down, dying to self. There's a third characteristic. Salty disciples are those who cut earthly ties completely. It tells us about being willing to renounce all that we have in verse 33. 
So not only must any would-be disciple love Jesus in such a way that his love of family and friends and everything else looks like hatred and willingly put himself on a cross each and every day, but the would-be disciple, the salty disciple, must also be willing to renounce, turn away from, hands off, give up all that he has. And so Jesus' invitation to the kingdom is costly. It's costly. The Apostle Paul knew very well the cost of discipleship. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9 when he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, his life trajectory changed. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? We know he became a Christian. We know he became a great missionary. We know he became a church planner. We know he's the great theologian. What do you mean his life trajectory changed? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Remember? Philippians chapter 3, he begins to talk about his pedigree, begins to talk about uh, what he was before he met Christ and that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And man, he was on the trajectory. I don't know if he would have been the high priest, but he definitely would have been a strong influence within the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee above Pharisees. And when he met Jesus, all of that changed. He had to cut those ties completely. If you've got your finger in Philippians chapter 3, real quickly, let's read what he has to say in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, refuse, is what that word means. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his, his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul gives us real good picture of what it means to be a salty disciple. A disciple who's willing to cut every earthly tie for the sake of Christ and his gospel. You see, the life of a salty disciple is not an easy life. As Paul here has indicated, it always comes with a portion of suffering. What suffering are you enduring for the name of Jesus? C.S. Lewis offered some good thoughts on this reality in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, and I quote, The Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. That's what C.S. Lewis says about this idea. That when we come to Jesus and we seek to be a disciple and, and we determine to follow him, what does that mean? All earthly ties, affections, dreams, aspirations are in the wind. Now we're following Jesus. Are we willing to do that? You say, Pastor, I'm willing to do that as long as you right there told me you're not willing to do it. 
You right there told me, I'm willing to do what Jesus wants me to do as long as he does what I want him to do in the course that I've set for my life. A couple weeks ago, I, I mentioned that, you know, when we were ordaining Nate, I was preaching on what it means to be a preacher, what it means to be called and ordained and set on this path to, to, to be in this ministry calling in life. And I gave you the story of how I have inter- tried to interview and had conversations with many guys over the years looking, talking to them about joining our staff team, whether here or other places. And I have this continual issue that I run into, and that is guys will say, I am called to the ministry, I will follow God, and then they, they draw the circle of where they're willing to go serve the Lord. Huh? You said yes to Jesus, which means he gets to dictate the geography and the situation that you're going and the same would be true of you as a layman, sitting in the pews and serving in the halls of our church and within our community. Jesus is Lord and Master. We simply follow him. Whatever that calling is and whatever it looks like, whatever suffering we may endure as a result, we do it. Because salty disciples understand that following Jesus means we cut all earthly ties. Their first allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, obviously, this is a high cost. This is a, I'm going to change the whole trajectory of my life, and, and I'm going to be willing to move in a different direction as if the Lord leads us in that or if the Lord directs us in that. It's a price that some will not be willing to pay. It's just a reality. I was talking with Pastor Trevor yesterday as they got back from South Asia Friday afternoon and back here on campus Friday evening and learned Two men that we would have called brothers over there working in the work in South Asia in the last year have turned their back and went back to the old life. Some are not willing to pay the price. Some are not willing to walk their discipleship out because it's a high cost. Verses 28 through 32 here, Jesus lays out what this high cost means and and how we need to look at it. We need to evaluate it. We need to assess it. We need to come to a place where we can say, I am willing to pay the price. The builder doesn't begin a job, Jesus says, and, and start the thing and never think about the bottom line, whether or not he has enough income, enough resources to complete the project. No, that builder always, we got some builders in here, that builder always starts the project with the understanding, here are the resources we have, and it is enough to get, it job, get the job done. Today, Israel is warring against the terrorist regime known as Hamas, and they didn't in, engage in this conflict without strong detailed planning of whether or not they can withstand the longevity of the battle, the longevity of the war. They know it's a long fight, and they also know they have the resources and the willpower to get the job done. That's what Jesus' point here. So salty disciples intentionally love Jesus preeminently. They bear their cross daily. They cut earthly ties completely. I wonder, have we counted the cost of what this looks like in our lives. Four questions I want to put before you this morning as we think about salty discipleship. Here's the first question. What do I love more than Jesus? What do I love more than Jesus? I mentioned family earlier. 
How many of us love our family more than we love Jesus? We love our wives, our husbands, the kids, grandparents, parents, the family dynamic as a whole. How many of us love that more than Jesus? How many of us are in love with our career or our, our comfort or anything that you can think of that is becoming an, or has become an idol in your life? What is it that you love more than Jesus? A second question that kind of flows out of this is, what do I fear or avoid as the disciple? These first three questions I got from Trevor as he emailed me this week from South Asia saying, man, I've been walking through this passage. Here's some things that have really spoken to my life. And man, I, I was right on task with wherever he was as far as the points. I'd already got those laid out. We, were, we just differed on language and how to express those, but the points were there. And he gave me these first three questions. I added the, added the fourth. What do I fear or avoid as a disciple? You say, what do you mean by that? Well, there's things that we just simply say, yeah, I'm going to wall that off in my Christian life. And my discipleship's over here. I sense Jesus wants me to go in this direction, but no, I'm going to avoid it. We all have those areas. We compartmentalize our Christian walk and we put Jesus out some of the things Jesus wants us to do, we put outside of that box, and we're going to live right here in this space, and that is not lordship. Number three, what am I willing to give up to follow Jesus? You say, I'm willing to give up sin. I hope so, because you have to give up sin to walk with Jesus, but it's not always sin. Hebrews 12, verse 1 tells us that we are to set aside every sin and the encumbrances that entangle us. And encumbrances is a good thing, that's not the best thing. It's things that get us distracted, that dilute our devotion from the Lord, but they're not necessarily sinful things. Family could be that. Career could be that. But what am I unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? Here's where some of you are. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're in relationship with him. You know you should be doing certain spiritual disciplines, but because you're unwilling just to simply get up 15 minutes early in your life each and every day, you're not really walking with Jesus the way you should be walking. How, what do you mean by that? Part of walking with Jesus is having fellowship with him, and that happens through the word. One of the things that will take your Christian life to heights you've never seen before, for those of you who don't read his word and spend time in prayer, is daily personal devotion time, spending time right here in this thing. Are you unwilling this morning to give up your schedule, get up earlier, or carve out another space within your day Carve it out so that no one else steals it, not even yourself, so that you can spend time with the Lord. Some of you are unwilling to give up your finances. You're unwilling to give up your time. You're unwilling to give up your talents. And so the Lord wants to use you. And one of the ways he grows you is by using you and utilizing the spiritual gift in your life. But you're, again, compartmentalizing yourself and you're saying, Lord Jesus, I'm going to walk with you right here. He always breaks those barriers. Always. Here's the fourth question. What in my life keeps me from being distinct from people who do not know Christ? What keeps me from being distinct? You know, when you're with people where you live and where you work and where you play, we talk about those categories often. How distinct are you as a follower of Jesus? Paul talks about us having an aroma of Christ to some, that aroma is like a, a stench. It's like death, right? 
And to those who are not in Christ, it reminds them of their own sinfulness, their own decaying depravity from their sin. And so it's reprehensible. But to others, it's like a sweet-smelling aroma. It's like that ribeye on the grill. Man, it tells you when to go over there and get your fork and get your knife and get your napkin, put it above your, your shirt and set at the table because you're about to feast. We all have an aroma. What is your aroma? Does it smell like the world that you're around? Or do you smell like Jesus Christ? What is it that doesn't set you apart from others? I'm going to poke on some stuff. Man, I know I'm past time, but it's, it's the worship ministry's fault. I'm going to poke on some stuff for just a second. I mean this in Christian love. When our Christian freedom, which we have, takes us to places that becomes a hindrance to others, it becomes sinful. Say, give me some examples of that. When we partake of, even perhaps in moderation, alcohol, does it put you does it put us in a predicament where we're actually hurting the advancement of the gospel in others' lives or the development of the gospel within the body of Christ? So when I'm hanging out and I say we just trying to be nice, you know me, I don't drink at all. I can't stand the taste of it, so it's not in, but I've got my own vices, right? I've got my own things. So, but I'm, I'm pointing this one thing out right here. So when we're engaging in that, are we willing to forsake that for the sake of others? Or, or are we so in our freedom, dead set, I'm going to live out my freedom. I don't care what it does for anything else. Or maybe we don't even think about what it might be doing in someone else's life. Because it's always saying or, or, or portraying some message. Paul doesn't deal with it in the context of alcohol. He deals with it in his letters in the context of meat sacrifice to idols. He's coming at it from the standpoint of, here we got different levels of maturity within the church, and you've got people who are buying meat from the marketplace. They know that's been meat sacrificed to idols within the community, but in their maturity, they understand, rightly so, that it's just meat. And God created the animal. He's sovereign over all things, and it's maybe at a discounted price. It's a good deal, so... Take and eat and enjoy. But others would look at that because they're a little bit less mature and they're thinking, are they worshiping at the temple, the idol? And they're confused there. And Paul says, if it's going to cause someone else to stumble, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And so I take that same principle and I lay it over and against alcohol because I see that. But I could also lay it across a lot of other things in our lives. Are we so hell-bent in our Christian freedom that we don't care about other people. Salty disciples will look and say, you know what? I want to cut all earthly ties. I want my life to look so like Jesus Christ that they never mistake me for a worldly person. That's not a holier-than-thou perspective. That's an I'm-better-than-you perspective. That is a humble disposition, understanding that you, by the grace of God, would be a crispy critter. On your way to hell. Salty disciple. Ask these four, these four questions. And the answer is always, I want to love Jesus preemptively. 
I want to cut all earthly ties. I I want to carry the cross God has for me and be willing to suffer whatever it takes to grow and to display the gospel in my life. You see, salt adds flavor. Salt works as a preservative. And Jesus says here that salt is good. And yet salt, if it loses its saltiness, he goes on to say in these latter verses of this passage, it's worthless. It's, it's good for nothing, not for the soil, not for the manure pyre. It is worthless. Now, we know in our scientific minds, we understand that salt chemically is a compound made up of sodium chloride, right? And we understand that salt never loses its saltiness. It's a compound. If you change the compound, it's no longer salt, so what are we supposed to make of this? Well, we also know um, back in that day, they didn't have the purification and the ability to have such pureness in their salt like we do today. And so what would happen is their salt would have other minerals get mixed in with it. And so its saltiness was diluted. No longer is it good for anything. You throw it out. You throw it out. This is what Jesus is speaking of, this dilution that is taking place. And so, Christian, if you've been called into a saving relationship with Jesus, he has redeemed you by nailing your sins to his cross and paying the redemptive price for them. He has cleansed you from all sin. You've been invited into eternal fellowship with him within his kingdom. You've been called and invited into sonship within the family of God. You see, in this new life, Jesus requires now that you follow him. He requires that you love him preeminently. He requires that you bear your cross daily. He requires that you cut earthly ties completely. And so when you live in this way, you will be a salty disciple that adds rich gospel flavor to those who are around you. And you will also be a gospel preservative to those who are around you. So it goes back to that question I said I asked earlier. Is there a distinctness, a distinctiveness in our life? that brings flavor to a room when you walk in. Preservation when you're there. Again, it is not a holier than thou, I'm better than you type of attitude, but people ought to see a difference in your life. They they ought to see a difference in your life. But if your language sounds just like their language, there's no distinction. And your jokes are the same as their jokes, there's no distinction. When your approach to your finances is the same as theirs, there's no distinction. When your commitment to the church is the same as theirs, there's no distinction. When you're drinking the same thing they're drinking, smoking the same thing they're smoking, sexually doing the same things they're doing, there is no distinction. And that tells me one of two things about you. You're either not in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've deceived yourself, or you're guilty in sin, walking at a guilty distance. Both are not good. And so the cost of discipleship is great. Here's the good news. The reward is well worth the price. Well worth the price. It is a relationship with the God who created you, the God who's worked to redeem you, and the God who will keep you for all of eternity. And all the sufferings that we may endure in this life pale in comparison to the vast benefits and blessings that await us in heaven. This world's passing, and we're passing through it. But one day... We'll get to see all of that glory. And we live for that. Amen? Amen. We live for that. Salty disciple. Are you salty disciple?
Can you say this morning, these three characteristics are present in your life? If not, you probably need a better answer to one or all four of the questions that we asked earlier. We're going to move into a time of response. This is an opportunity for us to respond to God's word. In repentance, faith, whatever the Lord's laid upon your heart. And so let's stand to our feet. Trevor's going to come. He's going to lead us in a song. We're long. It's the usher's fault. <laughs> let's pray. Father, as we have walked through this service today, it's, it's been a special one. This observing the Lord's Supper, that sacred meal, highlights for us the gospel. That Jesus' body was bruised and beaten on the cross. His blood shed. All of that so that we could have our sins forgiven. As removed as far as the east is from the west. Cleansed, made whole. And Lord, in that, we are called into relationship. We're called into family. We're brought together as the family of God. We've recognized that as we've recited our covenant and what that means for us as a local body of Christ, a local church. All of that brings us to what we've heard in the preaching of your word. How this relationship calls us to a pure devotion. This morning in this room, there are some who've never yet come into relationship with Jesus, and there are others who in that relationship are walking at a distance. And Lord, you're calling us to yourself. And so Father, I pray that we would begin the journey of loving you more than anything else, that our lives are orchestrated, built around the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that we're willing to bear our cross, whatever that looks like. The yes is on the table, and as such, we're cutting all earthly ties, not turning back on people or family and anything like that. We're just saying, my allegiance is to Jesus, first and foremost. He directs me. He charts out the course. And Lord, I pray that we would have a distinctiveness about us as a result that is life-giving, it's flavorable, flavorable. And Lord, it is life-giving in the sense that it brings a preservation to others. They see the gospel in our lives. They are enticed by that. They're longing to know more and opportunities to share and to bear witness and to call them to faith and repentance take place. Lord, that's what we want to see out of us individually as well as collectively. So to that end, we pray. And to that end, we make ourselves available to you this morning in this time of response. Have your will, have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.